Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that is shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to increase major planned and principal giving. QBAC acts as a force multiplier for fundraisers, enabling them to focus on what they do best, developing deep relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. QBAC automates the qualification process beyond simple scoring to ensure that your fundraisers have the best prospects. QBAC also uncovers actionable insights about current and future prospects to help fundraisers develop personalized cultivation strategies. Start closing bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? I'm looking forward to two things this summer, getting back to the ballpark with my kids and getting the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow back on the calendar. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All we need you to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There is no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow in your community, reach out and let's have a conversation today. Hi, Carl. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. Uh, Before we dive into our conversation, which I'm very much looking forward to, uh, I haven't been here on the podcast in a while, so I'm kind of ready to warm up. I was traveling for a couple of weeks, so uh, I'm kind of glad to be back in my seat, back behind back behind my laptop and my microphone. So, uh, and I'm glad to kick off this week with you, Carl. Tell us who you are. Yeah, my name is Carl Brady. I am currently the Donor Relations Manager at Carolina Youth Development Center in North Charleston, South Carolina. We're a residential group care facility, so we host uh, kids in foster care right ranging in age from kind of middle school age to age 21 as we help them transition into adulthood. And then we also do community-based prevention services that help parents uh, not enter the foster care system um, and develop parenting and and life skills. And then I moonlight (laughs) on Charleston City Council where I represent District 5 
which is the outer West Ashley portion portion of the city of Charleston, as well as John's Island. Yeah, when you reached out, that that kind of intrigued me, and I I gotta say I have to. Um, well, first of all, I gotta tell you, and I didn't share this with you before we hit the record button, but my, my wife and I met and married in uh, Savannah, and uh, and at the time we didn't oh, have much to uh, didn't have much, too many pennies between the two of us to rub together, so we uh, honeymooned in Charleston. And, uh, and then for oh, several nice. years thereafter, we would return it. This was before we had a, the four kids that we have now. Um, in fact, the last <laughs> time we, we uh, spent our anniversary in, uh, in Charleston, we ha- our, our oldest, who is now 18 years old, uh, was probably about a year old. And we stated that, uh, there's a campground with a little water park and stuff on James Island. Does that sound familiar? Is it still there? That yeah. sounds right. Yep. Yeah. So that was our yep. first attempt at camping as a young family, as you can imagine. And, uh, and it was, it was quite an enjoyable, um, it's quite an enjoyable trip, but we haven't been back a whole lot. Um, what's, oh, yeah. it, what's it like to be in Charleston? Before we dive into our conversation, what is it like to live in Charleston, raise money in Charleston with the big, with the big, uh, <laughs> blackboard? Uh, it, that's gotta be a big yeah. deal, right? Yeah, so Blackbaud's a great corporate partner for a lot of nonprofits um, here in Charleston, yeah. and um, you know they're they're great at, at sending volunteers out as well as uh, not just helping out sponsorship wise um, with nonprofits, but also um, they're very good um, just being involved in the community overall, and uh, they give through various means. Um, but raising money in Charleston's been great. Uh, we have a really involved philanthropic community. Yeah. Um, and that was actually one of the things when I was looking to move to Charleston, I, I pulled some of the 990s for just various nonprofits and the net asset position on most of them was excellent, which showed that, you know, fundraising was, well, not a piece of cake. Uh, fundraising was going to be, uh, you know, a good, a good thing to get into here in town. Yeah. 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 I think the other, the other thing I, my wife and I appreciated about Charleston differently than, I mean, Savannah's got a beautiful historic district and, uh, and, and a lot of what has sort of happened in Savannah has happened since Forrest Gump came to town and everything. But Charleston always seemed like they were a decade or two ahead of Savannah in terms of really capitalizing on that those downtown districts. Do you think so? Does that sound about right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Charleston was one of the first cities in the country to uh, create a board of architectural review. Um, this was back in the 1920s. Yeah. And- uh, it preserves the historic character of uh, the peninsula and the historic district. And then we also have a design review board that uh, works for the areas outside of downtown because uh, being in a coastal city, uh, obviously we have to fight mother nature a lot, um, especially as it comes to water. Yeah. And, uh, and we want to make sure that, you know, not only are the historic buildings preserved, but that we're building a resilient city for the future. As yeah, well. totally. Yeah, it's a beautiful city. So, Carl, we always ask our uh, guests to come with a big idea or bold opinion. We don't necessarily uh, – you don't have to check it with me. And uh, so so what are we talking <laughs> about today? Yeah, when I, uh, when I had reached out, I kind of had an idea – Um, serving on city council has been a unique experience for me. And then obviously working in fundraising, but when I was living in Connecticut, I actually served on a board of education up there as well. And so the big idea was, was really just to talk about, um, how giving back to your community, whether it's through elected office or through civic service, um, and being on various boards and and commissions and that type of thing, uh, can actually really help your fundraising, even though it is extra time. Um, it can actually help you fundraise. 
Yeah, I, I recently read a book along that line that um, uh, John Kay is an author, uh, writes a book. Uh, he's an economist that teaches at London – no, in Cambridge, uh, at Cambridge. And he talks about how uh, a lot of our goals in life are sort of better better achieved sort of in, 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 in an indirect route. And uh, when I talk to guys like you who sort of play guys or gals, whoever, you know, when you're playing a community role, it doesn't necessarily just say I'm walking around town as a fundraiser, but I've got other things I do. It, it makes sense that it's it's a better indirect route to accomplishing many of the things that we as fundraisers are um, out to accomplish. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I actually um, kind of part of the impetus for this was uh, I read Give and Take by yeah, Adam yeah. Grant. And one of the things that his research, and for those that don't know him, um, you know, he he's a organizational psychologist at the Wharton School of Business at, at the University of Pennsylvania. His research bore out um, that there's kind of two types of people, um, givers and takers. Yeah. And takers in the short term seem to get ahead faster um, because they take of other people's time, talent and treasure. Um, but when you're playing the long game, which I would argue that fundraising is the long yes, game, sir. Um, those people that that give of their time, talent and treasure to help build up other people to serve their community um, while not being taken advantage of, you know, those are the folks that actually end up being the most successful in creating the most impactful change. Yeah, I, I, I yeah, that, that's that's I'm working. I'm wrapping up a book project right now, and I, I'm thinking, man, I got to go grab that, grab a copy of Adam's book because you're absolutely. I remember reading that give and take. I, I remember reading that a number of years ago and thinking something along that same line. But part of what you're talking about, Carl, and we had a guest on the podcast talk about this. I don't know six or eight weeks ago. Part of what you're talking about too which also relates back to the idea of you being embedded in the community in different roles is the longevity with which you stay in your seat. Um, I mean, some of these fundraisers do like Grant talks about, you know, if you're a taker and you can immediately take and make some really great, you know, hit some, hit some home runs right away. That's one thing. But if you stick around, take an indirect route, uh, you can probably make some miracles happen. Don't you think? That's right. That's right. And, you know, I, I, the way that I kind of approach it is, um, you know, essentially as a fundraiser, you are a taker in some regards sure. in terms of you are taking people's yes. money uh, for the admission advancement of your own organization. But eventually those chickens come home to yeah. roost, right? Like there's only so much of that uh, that you can walk around representing. And so from my vantage point, being involved in the community is important because, when that ask does come of a donor or an organization that I eventually make, uh, it's not just me representing my organization. It's also uh, the things that I've been doing in the community. So when they see um, I'm in Leadership Charleston, which is a leadership development program for the Charleston Metro Chamber, mm -hmm. we just did a community garden out at a rural library. And, you know, they posted it on Facebook. Some of my uh, fellow participants did as well. Um, and, you know, people are able to see that we're out there making a difference in the community, um, you know, with our free time on a Saturday. And, and I think it's important that as a fundraiser, you know, I don't look at that as just something extra I have to do. I view it as an integral part of my job um, to be out there because there's, and I was just talking about this with a friend of mine uh, who's also a fundraiser the other day, you know, to your point, there is the direct uh, kind of fundraising where, you know, I have a portfolio and I'm building relationships with those donors uh, within my portfolio for the organization. Yeah. 
Um, but it's through these various avenues of being on several boards in the community, you know, working with, with my rotary club, um, that you indirectly get introduced to people that not necessarily would be in the network of people within my own regular portfolio. And, uh, and I think, you know, people being able to, to see that is important. Um, and viewing it as part of the work. Yeah, yeah. That's what this guy Kay is talking. So he, like I said, he teaches at Cambridge and he's writing. He's an economist and he's talking about how, uh, there's, there's a phenomenon that plays out. I think we've historically, we've talked about Steve Jobs knew this too when they, when he designed the Apple facilities and so forth is you create these environments where sort of these serendipitous sort of opportunities happen. And that's essentially what you're talking about in your role. You're in these, you're, 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 you're out about, you're out and about in town doing multiple roles, but it also creates these serendipitous sort of surprises, um, which is something that I think, you know, thinking about the project I'm working on right now, you know, if our profession doesn't get more comfortable with sort of the uncertainty and sort of unpredictability of sort of what we're navigating in this world, I don't know that we're ever going to sort of really win out what our opera, you know, I don't think we're ever going to sort of achieve what we really can. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, one of the things I've noticed is, uh, you know, through doing the community involvement uh, the way that I do, you know, it builds my own network as well. And so, you know, I think there's something to be said for, you know, we're all held accountable for, for meeting goals and, and hitting sure. projections. And sometimes if you can't get it through the normal method of execution, uh, working your fundraising plan, having your own network that you can call in uh, a favor to, you know, to, uh, to get a gift or, uh, you know, to get a company to send some volunteers to help out, uh, having that in your own personal network and your own personal repertoire. Uh, has helped out immensely. You know, I, I'll give you a perfect example. Um, a lady I used to work with at a previous nonprofit here in Charleston took a role at BlackBod. And uh, my uh, my company, Carolina Youth Development Center, we were working on uh, really trying to ramp up our Giving Tuesday campaign. And uh, so I called called this lady I used to work with, who now works at BlackBod, uh, asked her if BlackBod would be willing to uh, be a matching gift partner for ours so that we could you know, double the impact essentially because people give more when they know their gift is being matched. And, uh, and Blackbot was able to come to the table, um, with a matching gift opportunity for us for Giving Tuesday. And we raised four times more this Giving Tuesday than we did the previous Giving Tuesday. Um, and, you know, part of it was, you know, calling somebody in my network that worked at the company to, you know, facilitate that interaction. Okay. So I've never, I've never sort of thought about it this way. Um, I, I really do appreciate and I like the direct direction you're going with your role as a community leader and as a fundraiser, but, but, but I got to balance it with, uh, so I had a little here, I'll, I'll sort of unpack this a little bit. Um, and, and I'm not in any way <laughs> picking on Rotarians, but, um, I've been a Rotarian myself. I started a rotary club, for example, but I had, a, I had, a, I had a development office that worked for me once that she was utilizing her, her, her view was, is that she was sort of utilizing the rotary club as, as sort of the direct route. I mean, you know what a rotary club is, right? We all know what rotaries mm-hmm. are. I'm, yeah. I'm okay. Rotary. So we all know, but, yeah. but it, it was rotary became the direct route. And, and, and I think there's something like you didn't hop on that. You, you didn't, what is it? A commissioner? Is that what, what's your, what's your title on the, uh, uh, city, city, city council. council yeah. You didn't, you didn't get on the city council. You, you didn't get on city council 
because you are a fundraiser. You get on city council because it was something that you were interested in, something you're good at, you know, somewhere where you could flourish in addition to where you're flourishing at work. But utilizing mm-hmm. some of these venues like 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 she was in, in the case of Rotary, it, it, it sort of soured almost both experiences for herself <laughs> and certainly for those on the other side of the table. Um, do, do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it gets it gets back to my point about uh, if you're viewing it as extra work, uh, it it won't have the impact that you're looking to yeah. have on the kind of indirect side. Um, But if you view it as kind of the integral part to the job that, you know, I'm a, I view it as kind of being a brand ambassador, right? So like I carry my organization with me with everything I do, because inevitably no matter where you are, it comes up, you know, who are you and what do you do? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So, so that the, the various pathways that you're able to interact with that, um, you know, it kind of, spreads out the tentacles, so to speak, so that the, the reach of the organization is far more. Um, but I, I, to your point, I don't use any of those as kind of the direct route. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, because, because it gets back to that's kind of the taker yeah. approach. That's not the giver yeah. approach. Yeah. It reminds us so we're all watching the news. You know, you got this big ship, shipping channel, Suez can, Canal, and they, <laughs> that's the direct route. So they dug this big hole and they created this much more direct route and then you get stuck. And it, uh, and I, and I think that's kind of like what we're talking about here. When you take the direct route, I was in a, I was in a chat room the other day. We were talking about, I mean, we were literally having the same conversation, you know, and, and the question inevitably comes up. How do you get to major donors? And I'm like, you don't get to major donors. There's no direct route to major donors. What you have to do is you have to be in these spaces where they're at and it has to become part of your comfort zone. And you sort of have to wait for the, op- you have to patiently wait for the opportunity to sort of emerge. I mean, isn't that how it works? Yes. Yeah, no, I think so. Um, you know, I'll give you a perfect example from my own kind of uh, background. I mentioned I was on a, the Board of Education in Torrington, Connecticut, which is a city of about 40,000 um, up in the northwest corner in Litchfield County. Yeah. And uh, I, w- I happened to uh, to be out. Our, our Board of Education meetings would go until midnight sometimes. And uh, I happened to be out at the Applebee's in Torrington with the uh, Board of Education chair and just got talking to him about what he did for work. And it turned out he owned a directional boring company, um, which is a very niche industry. There's (laughs) not a lot of players in that field. And, uh, and he got, you know, just let him talk. And he got talking about a couple of vacation homes that he owned. And, but if you, if you just were looking at him, uh, you know, he would wear a flannel shirt, jeans and dirty work boots. You would never think that this guy was a multimillionaire um, walking around and so he ended up becoming the primary sponsor for a fundraising breakfast uh, that we did um, for the Boy Scouts when I worked for them. And, uh, you know, he was able to help us take that event from uh, a cute little breakfast that only raised about four thousand dollars to uh, when I left the Boy Scouts to move to South Carolina. Uh, that breakfast was almost make, making thirty thousand um, dollars, you know, with you know kind of a seven, almost seven, eightfold increase over the four years I was up there. And, uh, and, you know, it was just directly attributable to, you know, serving on the board of ed. It wasn't the direct route. I wasn't looking uh, for, you know, major gifts from it. But then just through kind of the sitting around and talking, found a major donor. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like if I'm piecing it together, it sounds like, Carl, y- your, your whole professional life has sort of 
both personally and professionally, your involvement with the scouts, for example, uh, your experiences up in Connecticut have been sort of a development of the appreciation of sort of an, an indirect route and not trying to exploit mm-hmm. the uh, w- one of the it's and not trying to sort of exploit the the most the obvious, but perhaps explore the you know what the possibilities are. I think that's what if if I'm most consistently saying anything here on the podcast, it's this difference between exploitation and exploration. It's this idea that that that's fundraising right. has become so exploitive in my in in, in the sense that. That I think both uh, b- those on both sides of the exchange. So those of us on the, the the fundraising side feel exploited by our employers, misunderstood, and sometimes exploited <laughs> by the donors. And then the donors feel like they're being exploited as if they're a, an ATM machine. And I think if we both mm-hmm. approach it, and, and I have to say, I think I, I've, I've experienced this with major donors as well. I think if we both came to the table with a more of an exploratory mindset, like we're going to explore the possibilities of where this might go. And we might even surprise ourselves and we might even find out that we don't even find any treasure. You know, we're out in the, you know, we're like like traveling around in the jungle or something. And we know something's out there, but we don't know exactly what we're looking for. Um, Has life, am I picking up, am I picking up that maybe life has taught you that? And that, and that if life has taught you that, that's (laughs) kind of a skill set that we ought to be trying to, uh, identify amongst more of our people? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, and, and I'll, you know, you, you mentioned the, uh, the employer side feeling exploited and I, and I think, you know, I want, I want to be clear, not every employer has embraced sure. uh, the kind of community involvement fundraiser idea. Yeah. Um, you know, because, because again, some of them view it uh, as just a distraction away from, you know, sit down, go the directory, work the portfolio only, and, uh, and, and I think that's to the detriment of, you know, any cause, because if you really look, uh, you know, in the Chronicle of Philanthropy puts out their yearly report, I mean, charitable giving remains around $700 billion, give or take a few. Yeah. Um, but there's not been any type of exponential growth from it. And part of me wonders if that's because the approach isn't changing. Uh, you know, we keep, you know, we talk about a lot. Um, yeah. If most donors give to kind of five organizations, yeah. uh, and in, here in South Carolina, the top two are the church, your, you know, your local church and your alma sure. mater. And my tact is always, you know, I just want to be in the conversation for the other three. Right, right. <laughs> like, I don't mind if I'm fifth, uh, but, you know, I'd like to be in that conversation. And, uh, and you know, it's just really, really kind of to the detriment of the employer not looking at uh, the kind of long-term future play. Uh, that, you know, yeah, I could probably get a hundred dollars from, you know, someone in my rotary club right now, but is it worth playing the long game? Uh, and having that become a major gift of, you know, major gift relationship and, or, uh, really developing a partnership and, uh, and kind of going that route. Cause I, I'll give you a perfect example. And I, I just had this conversation, um, this morning where, uh, I think a lot of nonprofits have, uh, this idea that if a, a donor comes with a, major amount of money, uh, they'll find a way to get it in terms of they'll go create a program that they may not be good yeah. at, uh, to capitalize on getting a gift. Yeah. And I've always said, you know, I think that people can, you know, how Spider-Man has his spidey sense. Uh, I think people have the tingling sensation when they know that they're being misled. 
And, uh, you know, so if someone came to me and, you know, I predominantly work in human services, but if someone came to me and said that they wanted to help save the spotted owls, um, you know, some people would try and find a way to create a program that would, that would optimize that. Uh, but my tact is more, you know, there's a couple of nonprofits here in town that deal with, uh, you know, helping out birds specifically and then kind of endangered species. And, you know, I'm more than happy to, uh, refer them to my friends from the Association of Fundraising Professionals chapter that are at those organizations. And, uh, you know, I can tell you, and this has been at every organization I've worked for, I've had interactions like that. And the organization that I work for, nine times out of 10, we'll get a check from that person because, and the thank you note usually goes something of, you know, thanks for connecting us to this organization. They're wonderful. We really appreciated the referral. You know, here's a check to help out your organization. Um, and for referring us to the other one. And so, you know, I, I, that's more the approach that I kind of like to take because uh, I think people can spot disingenuous people pretty easily. Yeah. I mean, it, it, in some ways you're getting at, um, you know, if, if we think about this from sort of a supervisory sort of standpoint, I, I think the biggest issue I have with the way that most supervisors approach this is, A, they haven't spent a lot of time themselves in the field doing the work, and so they can't really relate, and they can't really (laughs) provide a guy like you with a halfway decent set of constructive feedback in terms of how things go. They just pat you on the back and say, thanks for for collecting the check. But but I I think... I think what we're also, what we also have to uncover is that if we know that fundraising works better in sort of an indirect way, what we also are relinquishing when we do that is control, which inevitably arrives at at fear. And fundraising is oftentimes a fearful (laughs) job anyway. And so do we really want to compound the fear factor? by necessarily always relying on a direct approach. I think we've got a lot of high relationship, high, highly relationship driven people out there for whom are very fearful of messing up a relationship far more than they're concerned about whether you write them a check. And when the boss is a control freak um, who can only tolerate <laughs> a direct route. I mean, I mean, these are, these are some of the sort of the environmental sort of uh, considerations I think we're not really sort of wrestling with when we talk about turnover, for example. I mean, we see these studies repeatedly coming out. Mm -hmm. People turn, you know, they want to quit. They want to quit. Well, sure, they want to quit because the boss is a control freak and and they don't understand that that most of this gets done indirectly. Am I right? Yeah, I I think that's true. And, you know, turnover is something that uh, I'm a big reader about as well Um, because I think just nonprofits in general – Um, you know, I think it's the lens that I come at the turnover angle from is as a fiduciary steward of the organization, right? Uh, and someone who's responsible for responsibly spending the donor's money. When you have high turnover and we know it costs more to recruit and train somebody new than it does to keep just an average performer. But a lot of organizational executives, turnover and churn aren't even part of their evaluation. And, you know, knowing in fundraising, what gets measured is what gets done. Yeah. And so if a, if an organizational executive, you know, whether it's an ED or a CEO, if that's not part of their evaluation every year, then it's not something that they really care about all that much. But from mm-hmm. my lens, trying to raise money, you know, I find it hard to talk with a donor uh, about being a responsible steward of their money when we know on the back end, that we're not able to keep and retain talent. 
uh, and that we're spending more money than we need to to try and keep those positions filled. I never thought about that, Carl. You're absolutely right. And it reminds me of some research that I put into the first book, the idea that uh, healthcare executives or those evaluating healthcare facilities, for example, learned a long time ago that the quality of care that we give our, um, Ooh, this is, this is, this is messy, Carl. Uh, the quality of care that we give patients <laughs> is oftentimes a direct reflection or correlates with the quality of care that hospital executives gives their nurses. So basically what the, the research <laughs> shows is that how well a, uh, a hospital takes care of its nursing staff is also an indication, you know, is an indirect way of assessing how well a, uh, uh, a patient is taken care of. Well, the same, and I remember thinking about this and I'm, and I'm listening to what you're saying here. And I'm reminded of that thought that if we stopped focusing, because you know, we love to talk about renewal rates in this, in this sector, in this space, I mean, <laughs> how well are you renewing your donors? Well, to renew a donor is to basically say to keep them around. Well, if we focus more on evaluating, instead of evaluating renewal rates every year, we, we held a boss accountable to renewing his, making sure that Carl stayed on the payroll. Um, we take a <laughs> cue from the healthcare, you know, healthcare world about taking, you know, if a nurse, if a nurse sticks around for a while, he or she provides a level of care to that patient. I want the same thing for my, do- for my donors. Right. You know, I'll give you, I'll give you a perfect example. So my dad works for uh, McDonald's corporation, the hamburger yes. company, and he oversees, 23 stores uh, that the company owns and operates. And part of his uh, scorecard is that he can't have a turnover rate higher than 10%. And that's not just the people that are his direct reports. That goes all the way down to the part-time fry kid that's 16 years old. The organization that he, his vertical can only have 10% because they know exactly what we described where it costs more to recruit and train new employees than it does to keep just an average performer. And, you know, yeah. when, especially uh, the, the joke that, that uh, he always likes to say, you know, is that, you know, McDonald's didn't go from the first store in Des Plaines, Illinois to a multi-billion dollar company without knowing where the money went. And so keeping and retaining talent is an organizational priority because it's an unnecessary spending of money. If they can just keep, yeah. Them. I mean, how many? <laughs> I have never thought about it this way. It's 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 not all that complex, but you're absolutely right, Carl. If we held if we held the nonprofit CEOs accountable to retaining their development directors, because the other thing we know is that the development directors that leave are they're not. I mean, granted, there's probably a a few of them that are not all that talented, and that's why they go, and we have to let them go, <laughs> and rightfully so. But but like you're talking about at McDonald's, it's oftentimes the the top performers. It's the people who are va- you know very valued that are the ones that we least like to see go. And so if I'm the if I'm the right. chairperson on the board who says, "Hey, you know, why does your development officer development shop completely turn over all the time?" Perhaps I'm picking up on the same, you know, perhaps I'm picking up on, certainly I'm picking up on an explanation for why we're not achieving our fundraising goals, because it tends to be very much focused on, you're not raising enough money and you never have a development officer in this, in this, uh, in this seat very consistently. Well, perhaps we need to be thinking about, does that, does that CEO, you know, have any idea 
you know, th- that raises a question. So, Carl, you've been around long enough. Do you, do you think some of that is going to work itself out in 10 years when, you know, more guys like you and me are, you know, I mean, I, I have I have people on here all the time that have been in the space for 10, 15, 20 years, but they're not quite in the senior most leadership roles. They're not the CEOs right. yet. But I think we got a lot of nonprofit CEOs that just haven't learned some of the stuff that we've talked about. And and perhaps when 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 a guy or gal like yourself lands in a CEO spot, some of this is just going to work itself out. Uh, I I think there's part I think part of that argument works. Yeah. Um, in terms of you know driving the organizational change uh, will require folks to get hired into those seats that have yeah. uh, that type of mindset. Yeah. Yeah, but one of the things I think, and um, speaking of, you know, my, this was a couple of jobs ago, but my vice president ended up leaving and I had to fill in in the the interim capacity and I was supervising a couple of, uh, you know, it's always hard to go from colleague to supervisor. (laughs) Um, And so I was supervising a a couple of colleagues that I previously kind of worked with. And, uh, and one of them was, was kind of fearful for her portfolio that year. And, uh, and I told her, and I think this gets to the point about how you can reduce turnover and have, you know, an honest conversation with people. And, and I told this, this person, if you can show me that you worked the process, yeah. that you did the moves management with your portfolio yeah. and you end up five, 7% away from the goal, you know, you're within spitting distance, uh, but you can show me that you worked the process then that's what I'm going to evaluate you on uh, is did you do the best with the cards that you were dealt? Cause we know that there's going to be natural attrition. You know, people are going to die. People are going to move. Um, you know, some people are going to lose their jobs. Some people uh, have a life event happen where, you know, they have a kid and they have to reduce their charitable contributions. We know all of that uh, can play into it, but if you can show me that you had a process that you followed and you worked uh, then that's what I'm going to evaluate you on because it isn't always about an arbitrary number that gets picked out of the sky usually, um, as opposed to a thoughtful evaluation of, you know, I, I've seen too many times in my career where whatever you raised last year, just draw the line there and it's going to go up 7%. Yep. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's not how we should be holding fundraisers accountable. Yeah, and I and I and I've said that in a number of my seminars, and I'm I'm generally trying to say that as boldly as I can, and in front of as many people as as possible. We have drawn <laughs> a, and this gets back to Kay's book and and some of the stuff that you're, you've been talking about here today. We draw so we're so outcome focused, right? So we want to raise X number of dollars. So we draw a straight, linear, direct line directly to that. And, and and we don't really give a damn about what the process looks like in between point A and point B, when in fact what we also what 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 we know as fundraisers and certainly what our bosses need to grasp is that whether we even arrive at B, the process is ultimately what gets us there, and 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 I don't That's think right. we have enough, and I don't know. I don't know that there's more fundraisers necessarily than bosses that have really gotten a grasp of the fact that fundraising is a much more is better understood as a process oriented work than an outcome oriented work. And I know our sector has just been, you know, banging the drum for being outcome focused and give your donors these outcome indicators and that sort of stuff. And I can I can appreciate all that. But when it comes to the actual work of fundraising, it's the process that we're paying people to do. Quite frankly, I can't leap across that lunch table and make Mrs. Smith write that check. 
I don't care what outcome I'm <laughs> looking right. for. I can't, I can't control that particular outcome. I can only control the process. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think it gets, it gets into, um, you know, what we kind of were talking about is the bold idea of, of being involved in the community is the indirect yeah. route. You know, we know just like with marketing, uh, you have to be kind of touched seven times with a marketing touch to even remember what the company is doing. And it's you know the same thing. The donor needs kind of seven touches uh, before we ask for money because, you know, you, it's just like dating, right? Like, you know, you don't just meet and get married. There's a process that you you kind of follow. And, uh, and you know, I think it's, it's a lot of that. And, and that's where the community involvement side comes in is. Uh, it's being able to put yourself in spaces where, you know, some of the donors in my portfolio, you know, I will see out at the various things that we're doing, especially when some of the nonprofits I'm on the boards for, uh, they do their galas and stuff like we share donors. So I'm going to get to see them. And it's an additional touch in the community where I'm not asking for money. You know, I'm just bumping into them at the gala, chatting with them, you know, how their kids are doing, what their wife's up to. Um, and it's it's a touch without uh, an expectation of an ask behind it so that then when you do meet with Mrs. Smith over lunch, uh, they've seen you around enough times and interacted enough times when it's not necessarily you as, you know, Joe fundraiser, uh, with an expectation that there could be an ask following. Um, you know, you've had the touches where you haven't. And then when you sit down and make the actual ask at the lunch table, uh, it's a much friendlier conversation. No, oh my, are we dare suggesting that fundraisers ought to be ensuring that they, they, they themselves recognize themselves as human beings. Um, I, I'm reminded of, uh, so a friend of mine, um, Beth Breeze teaches philanthropy, runs a philanthropy department at, uh, at the University of Kent in Canterbury. And she wrote a book a number, a couple of years ago, uh, I think published in 2018. And she taught one of the things I, I very much appreciated about Beth's book is she pointed out this one little detail that I had never heard, but it's exactly what we're talking about. And that fundraisers oftentimes end up in places like on choirs. And in your case, they end up on the city council <laughs> and stuff. They're human beings. And sometimes right. we on the, on the soliciting side, need to remind ourselves that being involved in the community and sitting on this local board and singing in a choir. Um, I, I, I think one of the drums that I've been beating the last couple of weeks with my guest is the idea that we're, I think we're going to see a much more qualitative turn in fundraising practices in this sort of this post pandemic economy and I think that's one of the ways that we need to look at ourselves is that we're human beings and that the more you can sort of enhance your humanness and not be some, you know, soliciting robot all the time. Um, <laughs> I mean, I mean, gee whiz, I have to imagine, Carl, that if you and I sat on the, you know, the city council there in Charleston together, regardless of whether I even give a damn about the organization that you represent, I'm probably far more likely to listen to you and give it consideration just because you and I are doing something meaningful together as two human beings. That's right. Yep. Yeah, no, and that's, that's absolutely right. And I, I think it works that, especially just on city council in general, you know, it works that way uh, with a lot of us. As an example, one of the guys on city council owns his own insurance agency and a lot of the guys on city council get their of insurance they do. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, like it's just, it, it's just the nature. And then, you know, some of the guys are lawyers and, 
you know, some of us use them for, you know, very, you know, getting your will done and stuff like that. Like it's just a natural part of the interaction. Cause in some weeks, uh, especially during the start of the pandemic, when we were having emergency meetings pretty much every day, I mean, I was seeing guys on council more than I was seeing my wife <laughs> <laughs> during, during those weeks, you know? And so you, I mean, you get to know people really well. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the research. So, so a lot of this is this is extraordinary conversation, Carl, because I haven't been able to talk about uh, on the podcast yet in 250 plus episodes. We haven't been able to advocate for what I what we might call the indirect route. So I'm very grateful for this. But a lot of this, you know, originates at the yeah. beginning of the early early 20th century when we were building assembly lines, manufacturing, you know, Ford's automobiles and so forth. Those are direct routes, and so. If if right. your way of thinking is 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 linear and straight, and you think it's going to work that way, um, you're gonna you're either going to make your donors feel like they're stuck in a machine, or you're in a machine, or you're a robot. Um, you know, I even had Carl. Have you heard this? Let's see, have you heard some development offices actually refer to the process as like production? They actually use yes. They actually use language that just sounds like a an assembly line. Have you heard that stuff? Right. <laughs> I have. I have. Yeah. I mean, it's especially it's it's in reference to your performance. Like, what is your production? Yeah, it's just machine language. dollars. That's yeah. And, and, yeah. And, I, and I know exactly <laughs> who, who said it. And I'm not going to be too specific. And I respect the guy. But he was using language that I was like, man, you are just really using some output input machine language that makes us all just sound like we're, you know, just robots on an assembly line. No wonder we're afraid of losing our jobs because, because you're basically making it sound like if, you know, if we can automate every part of who we are, I, I, I think that's what's, that, that's what excites what? me about this line of work and the type of the, the particular category of work that we're talking about here within the sort of under the umbrella of fundraising is that this is the part of fundraising that cannot be done Auto, cannot be automated. You cannot automate having lunch with Mrs. Smith right. and asking her for a thousand bucks. When I, one of the organizations I sit on the board for was looking to hire a major gifts officer. And so, you know, me working in fundraising as a career, uh, they brought me in to help, uh, help their director of development craft uh, the kind of job performance measures in terms of how this, whoever they ended up hiring would be evaluated. Yeah. And, and I think it, I think it gets into, you know, and there's plenty of people that I've worked with over the years that, you know, seven meetings a week in person is the gold standard. Sure. And I, I pushed back on that. Um, and I, I had kind of, when I was helping, uh, this organization craft the, the way that their MGO is going to be evaluated, I said, you know, you have to think of it instead of you're not always going to have the coffee or the lunch meeting. Um, but the way to evaluate this person, uh, and this is how I had, I'd crafted it, was three to seven meaningful interactions a week yeah. with you know with a donor or potential donor yeah. uh, that you've qualified. Three to seven meaningful interactions, not meeting for you know not a meeting, because I think as uh, you know the kind of millennial and Gen Xers move higher sure. in terms of the percentage of the giving population. Uh, I can have just as mi meaningful a conversation via text with somebody, especially that's my age. Uh, they don't want to talk to me on the phone. They don't necessarily want to carve out an hour, hour and a half of their workday to go sit and have lunch. Yeah. Um, you know, 
anything that helps move towards closing a gift uh, is really what that person should be evaluated on. Not just, are they getting meetings for meetings yeah. sake? And I think that that's the production end of that, of thinking of it like an assembly line, like, you want me to set meetings? I can just go set meetings. But is it about setting the meeting or is it about actually moving the conversation forward and the relationship forward with no, that? No, we can do that. So that's a whole nother. So uh, I've been reading a book. I was reading, <laughs> I've been reading a book by a woman named Kathleen Allen and she's a uh, ecologist and she talks about how um, different ecologies. So you think about the cornfield behind my house here and it's just a, it's an ecology that's basically an ecosystem that's basically designed to sap all of the nutrients out of the ground and give nothing back. And then there's sort of these, this, what she calls a type two ecology, which sort of exists sort of in between the other two. But this third ecology is what she calls a generous ecology. It's an ecosystem that, that gives back as much as it takes. And that's essentially what you, we've been talking about this whole time is that when you take a more indirect route right. and you engage in the community and you sit on, you know, city councils or the local church choir or something, you're actually able to contribute to the community just as much as you expect the community to contribute to you. Um, and that's how, and, well, that's I think how it gets into the idea that's how old growth trees work. And that's how a thriving forest works right. is that. You know, the, 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 the beautiful trees and the forest and everything, it becomes extremely sustainable and, and thrives and, 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 and because, because everything is being generous back and forth. It's not just one directional. Yeah. And I, I think it gets into the idea of, uh, and, and I don't know how you would get a vice president for advancement to, to necessarily buy into this idea, uh, but it, it builds social capital, yep. right? And social capital is a yep. well. And you have to refill the yeah. well. <laughs> you can't let it run dry because then it makes your job even yeah. harder. Yeah, man. It sounds like we're reading a lot of the same books. Uh, we're at 42 minutes. We're at 42 <laughs> minutes and we officially lose our listeners uh, about, at about 45. So I'm going to wrap this up. Uh, you are yeah. always welcome back, yeah. Carl. Uh, if somebody's listening to us and uh, they want to follow up, they say, hey, I'm in the Charleston area and I want to ha- buy you lunch or buy you a cup of coffee or something. Um, maybe they just want to follow up on a thought that you offered today. How would you suggest that they reach out to you? Yeah, I can give you my, uh, my personal email. It's Carl K A R L dot Brady B R A D Y one, like the number one at gmail.com. Great Carl. And I'll also put a link to, uh, your LinkedIn profile when we post this on LinkedIn Yeah, and that'll get, uh, that'll get people to you there as well. Carl, it's been a pleasure. Pleasure, Jason. Thanks so much. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. 
We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.